Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 30th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 29, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 22, episode 30, or what the German regionalization team named Beyond Life and Death. I'm your host, John. In episode 29... Lucy and Andy, like Bobby and Shelley later, express their love. Cooper gets a Ronette-approved portal-opening jar from Margaret. Wyndham Earl takes Annie through Glastonbury Grove into the Red Room. Nadine regains her memory. Donna attempts to leave town. Doc Hayward punches Ben into a fireplace. Sarah delivers a message to the Major. And Audrey protests a bank, which explodes thanks to Andrew and Pete's curiosity. But none of that compares to Dale Cooper's time in the Red Room, where he listens to Jimmy Scott in the waiting room, spends a lot of time in dark strobe light, drinks giant-supplied coffee, gets warned by Maddie, gets screamed at by Lodge Laura, talks simultaneously to Annie and Caroline, gets saved from Wyndham Earl by Bob, and gets this close to outrunning a doppelcooper. And then he and Bob brush their teeth. So, yeah, we made it to the Season 2 finale. Congratulations, and I am happy that you are here with me. So, uh, yeah, we're going to start looking into this. And, of course, it's a giant episode, so we are going to split it in half and give you kind of a preview of how I'm going to be handling Fire Walk with me. But, yeah, as far as this episode goes, uh, we are going to look at these questions. How did Lynch's script changes affect the story? Does love heal all wounds? And how does the darkness reveal itself? And of course, before I'm going to look into those questions, I'm going to start with the behind the scenes information and uh, give you some background details. So this episode was written by Mark Frost, Harley Payton, and Robert Engels, and it was directed by David Lynch. The first draft was completed on February 14th of 1991, and there's a revised edition listed on February 25th of 1991. And the episode was filmed in early March. So from a nuts and bolts point of view, this ends up meaning a few things. So it was began before the official February hiatus began, but only just before. So that means that when this was being planned, there had to be rumblings out and about 
about, um, you know, imminent cancellation or, you know, like just watching the ratings of the, the early January episodes. I mean, everybody on staff had to be bringing everything they could to uh, try to secure a third season. You know, the, the revision was placed after that hiatus got put in place. So, you know, the show hadn't been officially canceled, you know, like their worst case scenario, but they knew that they really needed to add things for sure. And with with their um, with the typical way that episodes were uh, completed about six weeks ahead of actual scheduling uh, for TV broadcast, that made for an intended air date in late April which would have almost worked with when ABC was burning off the last six episodes in April that um, they initially uh, came up with for Twin Peaks, except that those early couple of April ratings were low enough that ABC didn't want to air the underperforming show during sweeps. So um, that's how we ended up getting the early June Monday Night Movie gig that came out a month later than things like the trading cards and the Cooper autobiography that this episode was supposed to debut alongside. And, you know, even even with that delay, Twin Peaks still hadn't been officially canceled until, you know, mid-May when, um, when the show wasn't on ABC's fall schedule that they posted. Yeah, there, there was this soft cancellation. And I, I basically have this hypothesis that the soft cancellation hinged on the potential that ABC saw for the show's future from this episode. And, you know, possibly ABC canceled it because of their reaction to this very episode. In Reflections, we've got Phil Siegel, who worked on the ABC side. Uh, He was kind of a liaison to the show in a way. But he basically said it made a mockery of ABC and television viewing audience. And, uh, he said part of him thought it was brilliant and refreshing because it broke the rules and was so avant-garde, and part of him and the network essentially felt betrayed because, in his words, a wonderful opportunity to keep something brilliant alive had just been destroyed by its creators. So it basically sounds like the reasoning that the network officially decided to cancel the show is the reaction to seeing how, you know, over time, uh, the creators didn't play ball with any network conventions. And, you know, of course, it was with intellectual property that the network didn't even own. So, you know, this was not a show that was going to learn to be remotely easy to work with. It hadn't been. And... This season finale just solidified all that. Like, you know, there there was no about face. So, uh, yeah, there there we have ABC just saying, okay, you know what, we're done. And, you know, I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong. You know, ABC has their business concerns and whatnot. And, uh, you know, Twin Peaks obviously has survived the, the test of time by, you know, not being a TV show that, you know, we all forgot about from the day. And, um, yeah, I mean, TV was a disposable product that, you know, you couldn't rewatch even at the time. You know, you had to be right in front of the TV set just to be there. So I can kind of see how these uh, these perspectives are different enough where it's just incompatible. But, yeah, back to this episode. Yeah, it started out as a Frost, Peyton, Engels script, and then David Lynch got a hold of it. And, you know, there's some kind of narrative that was... Uh, 
fairly it was commonly accepted enough between 2015 and 2017 that I heard mentioned on podcasts like Twin Peaks Rewatch and The Lodgers, where Lynch, with this episode, was either sending a giant fuck you to ABC or to his fellow writers. But, you know, based on everything that I've seen that I'm going to talk about here, um, Lynch was not on any kind of revenge trip, and it looks like the script was basically made with the intent to create a ton of cliffhangers, just like Episode 7 did for Season 1. And, you know, just you know, to keep it on the air with you know, intrigue and you know, all leftover questions. You know, if, if you actually look at the script, Lynch kept most of these endpoints you know, almost perfectly in place, which means he was a team player more than he wasn't. You know, sure, he changed around a few of the whys in between and, you know, changed the tone, but, I mean, that's, of course, what's going to happen. And um, really, the only thing that he really restructured was the fact that Cooper initially uh, went into a Jungian dream interpretation, essentially. And I know they do that. You know, this Jungian life, it's a podcast out there. They always end with a dream that they kind of interpret for archetypes at the end and i mean if if you uh listen to stuff like that show long enough you kind of notice that things like the great northern and cooper's father and everything i mean it's it's like typical jungian dream interpretation you know of course that doesn't line up with the way lynch does things because first of all he barely remembers dreams at all and he gets most of his stuff through meditation so i mean it it's not that um The ideas in the Red Room section are wrong exactly because Lynch uses it, but the whole vehicle of it is. Um, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting again where we have like certain incompatible ways of understanding that stuff that will come to to bumps a little bit but you know lynch wouldn't have had cooper with bob in the mirror at the end but you know it's still there team player but you know whose idea that was it was peyton and frost uh they came to the idea independently that it ends with cooper looking in the mirror and seeing bob you know what peyton said about that is basically you know his thought about Uh, season three at the time would have been that the doppelganger is loose and Cooper is trapped in the lodge. And he said, we had these scenes in place, but it never went beyond that. Now, as far as Lynch coming in and, you know, doing what he wants with the script, I mean, we've got uh, Mark Frost saying in Reflections, I've never questioned David's vision at any point in the process because his instincts are extraordinary. We knew it was going to be the last one, possibly for all time. And I think I remember saying, do whatever you want to do here. Use this as a map, not a set of directions. And he did. And when you've got a talent as singular as David, you don't question that. That would make no sense whatsoever. And then kind of for a little bit of comedy, also in Reflections, that comment was followed up immediately by Harley Payton, who said, I haven't read it in a while, but we all got together and wrote a part of it. In a perfect world, Mark and David would sit down and write the entire thing, but I think David just came in and went, okay, fuck it, I'm just going to do it my way. And God knows he did. The results are one of the more amazing pieces of television you'll ever see. I must say, I didn't spend a lot of time in the Red Room. And in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, we've got John Thorne saying, 
Frost and Peyton were understandably dismayed at some of Lynch's script changes, not because the alterations weren't well-directed or that they didn't capture the proper peaks ambiance, but because, according to Peyton, Lynch wasn't following the linear narrative that we were trying to lay down. Frost admitted that if the show had been renewed for a third season... We would have had to do a little bit of trouble. Uh, we would have had a little bit of trouble getting back to where we needed to go, and I suspect in that sense it was probably more about Harry. But you know, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. Also, an essential wrapped in plastic. Jen Thorne got uh, Robert Engels saying something a little more in line with uh, with Lynch's thoughts. He says, "I knew working on the last episode that what I wrote was never how it was going to be." I had a blast writing this stuff because I thought this isn't going to happen. I think other members of the production were thinking, oh, he's just fucking with it. He was the director and he was going to do it his way. He was having a ball. And, you know, that mindset kind of explains why Robert Engels was the one that Lynch talked to, you know, the the day after cancellation happened, um, after Greg Feinberg started to line up the idea that... um, you know, there could be a future movie and, you know, Lynch talked to Engels and they were the ones who kind of went forward with the firewalk with me. Cause yeah, he kind of knew probably better than the other two guys, you know, how it was going to shift around a little bit for this episode. And as far as, um, specifics there, Lynch said in Lynch on Lynch, uh, by, uh, Chris Rodley, he said it was written But when it came to the Red Room, it was, in my opinion, completely and totally wrong. Completely and totally wrong. And so I changed that part. A lot of the other parts were things that had been started and were on a certain route. So they had to continue. But you can still direct them in a certain way. But I really like that last episode. And um, (laughs) honestly, that, but you could direct it in a certain way, um, makes me think how he's illustrating how Diane Keaton uh, decided to turn Wyndham Earl into Shakespeare's pan instead of, you know, the cold collected mind sharp as a diamond. But, you know, I digress. That's my own little pet fun issue. But, you know, I mean, obviously in this episode, there's a little bit more than just that sort of thing happening. You know, there there was a lot of stuff with the Red Room that... um Lynch essentially rewrote and restructured and everything. Uh, I mean, he kept a lot of roots in there, obviously, and I'll be looking into that next episode for sure, like what's different and what stayed the same. Because, you know, Frost, Engels, and Peyton's stuff really is in there a lot more than you would think initially. But as far as why Lynch didn't get any credit of it, it's because, you know, he kind of had it in his head the whole way you know it's like lynch was working off an outline that only he had in his head and you know like maybe dialogue was was uh written out so that it could be done phonetically but that was about it you know according to reflections by brad dukes we've got lynch having everyone on edge because it had all been outlined in his head that he wasn't verbalizing Barry Gramillion, who is a location liaison, basically said that Lynch told him, I wouldn't pay too much attention to that script if I were you. And then he said, and then Lynch said, I would just have everything ready if I were you. And, you know, there were a hectic last few days as, you know, these last minute ideas kept flying in uh, from David and Peyton and Mark. 
and the other writers. So yeah, it sounds like everybody was kind of on board at the time. And you know, we've got Carol Striken basically saying that he thinks they all stayed on set on on the red room set all night, especially because people had been working nonstop. He noted that there was a guy walking around with a beautiful wooden case filled with different colored contact lenses and gave them out to the actors as needed. Lynch applied the uh, the blood to Caroline's actress and Heather Graham's dresses himself. We've got Jill Engels on set there reading everyone's backward lines to them phonetically uh, so that, you know, it kept up with the pace of production. Frank Byers was uh, setting up the lighting and the sets, etc. And uh, Byers didn't even know there was a reverse mag for shooting in reverse, uh, which was Lynch's request. And um, before any filming even happened, Lynch spent four hours rehearsing with the actors alone. You know, per Brenda Reed, who was Caroline's actress, uh, Lynch wrote the things as they came to him, improvising, and wrote more Caroline scenes for one thing. He was basically reacting to the things that he saw on screen as they were being filmed and was inspired to try new ideas. And, you know, me as your podcaster, I'm kind of wondering if, you know, the way this was evolving and changing as things were being filmed, it feels like, you know, the the process was filmed as well. You know, the, this transition from one idea to another, you know, it felt strange and and um, not exactly linear, but it did feel kind of like an evolution all the way through watching it, too. Like, you know, it's um, it was Lynch kind of filming his own process just as much as he was filming scenes. And um, you get some of this with uh, portraits and uh, you know, you know, there, there's some candids that were <laughs> being shot at the time because uh, Richard Bamer, the actor who plays Ben Horn, you know, he, he told uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped that you know, it, it took eight days to make it and uh, he'd already finished his part and there was this feeling that it was going to be the last show. So he told David, I like still photography, and no one's doing this. How about if I just start covering this? And Lynch said, get your camera. And that's how we get these great shots. I mean, look up. Look up Richard Bamer photos, Red Room, and you're going to come up with a whole bunch of really cool black and white shots. And um, <clears throat> honestly, between Bamer's stuff and a red and an interview with John Thorne that uh, Frank Silva did, between those two things, that's how we learn about things like Josie's body double being present. So I mean, there's a there's just a lot of craziness that would have happened there, and I would have loved for that to have been like a film documentary too, which is probably why Bamer wanted to do a documentary on season three because you know it's like how do you capture that kind of magic even more. But yeah, as far as how that was reacted to, um, it's the same ratings as the last episode because it got aired as the Monday Night Movie, uh, 10.4 million viewers. Okay, yeah, I kind of talked about how um, everybody reacted to it at the time, but I mean, from a from a personal standpoint, this episode is why I'm here speaking to you today. You know, before this episode... 
I was um, I was a seventh grader. You know, I, I watched Twin Peaks all the way through the first half of seventh grade, uh, which was the first year of junior high. You know, rather than grade school that I was in before that. I mean, you know, I was uh, I, I was pretty comfortable going through you know one through six in this one particular school, and then you know here I am in this whole new environment. You know, an introverted nerd kid who wasn't really fitting in super well, and you know we get things like you know Bob scaring the hell out of me but yeah i mean honestly i was in a a school that only went two years and nobody fits in good there you know kids were all going through all kinds of hormonal bullshit all at once being surrounded by other kids going through all kinds of hormonal bullshit you know i commend those teachers who teach middle school uh more than pretty much any other kind of teacher because we all had to be insufferable but we only needed to get through two years of it (laughs) before we were allowed to leave and go on to high school those teachers were probably there for a lot longer and oh my god it's got to be like purgatory and uh yeah so um the the murder of maddie pretty much broke me and you know i stayed on through the end of the year where um you know we get the uh leland's repast the the wake episode as a lot of people call it and you know i i pop back in and in the next half of the school year um, you know, just to kind of try it again, but you know, I, I was just kind of done. I needed a break from all the Twin Peaksiness. And um, toward the end of the second half of seventh grade, you know, things started to kind of, you know, move along. You know, it's like I got I got my dog Fritz that week. And, you know, like toward the end of Easter that year. And uh, you know, if anybody knows Fritz, like he was a major <laughs> a major character and uh, my best buddy through like that entire section of my life so you know it's like things were starting to you know turn a corner and you know seventh grade wasn't easy in the first place and the school year finally ended um and you know i only had eighth grade to go you know i was starting to go forward with things and you know i had heard the twin peaks was canceled essentially and that there was going to be one more movie in june to kind of you know hopefully uh, end things. <laughs> and, you know, I figure, you know, it's like, okay, uh, you know, for old time's sake, say goodbye to these characters that were fairly important to my uh, thought process at the time and, uh, you know, get proper closure to the Bob fears. You know, the, that was my hopes and expectations going into this episode. And of course, you know, Cooper getting taken over was almost too much because, you know, while I'm going through all these things, you know, the guy who knew how to navigate all the scary stuff and, you know, the the craziness in the woods of Twin Peaks, um, all the supernatural nonsense, this was the guy who, um, you know, could get me through, according to my brain back then, and he gets possessed by Bob, you know, it's like, that was not the kind of thing that I needed. And, um, you know, having, having mirror nightmares already at that point, you know, I, I didn't need a bathroom mirror specifically to also be like, you know, codified into the lore of Twin Peaks because, you know, we got, you know, me trying to take showers in a bathroom for, you know, a very long time, not really interested in looking in mirrors. So, uh, yeah, it was um it, it was kind of tough knowing that my TV hero was also stuck in the things that I was like particularly scared of. You know, sure, the rest of that summer, you know, I'm I'm 
able to kind of move forward. You know, I go to jazz camp playing trombone, uh, which is where I got into X-Men comics, you know, specifically because of, of all things, X-Force number one with the uh, crazy disproportion Rob Liefeld art and you know if you can if you can fall in love with an entire medium over something as silly as that you know it's true love so <laughs> you know I, I found the thing that I was going to go into you know for like the next decade of my life uh, just after Twin Peaks and you know another way that my whole life changed after that episode is um, I grew a foot that summer you know a whole 12 inches and um you know, I was I was unrecognizable to my uh, to my band conductor, you know, Mr. Dixon. He gave me a look, and I I still can see his double take when he's like, "Oh my God, that's John." So yeah, you know, like there's all these physical changes going on, and you know, going on within myself, and it became physical, uh, just kind of like uh, you know the instinctive I don't want to turn into Bob vibes that was going on in my brain you know it was all kind of uh coalescing at the right time and the right place for me to really attach to um a junction point focused show like twin peaks too and you know i mean in theory i could have moved forward from this uh, a little bit but you know still when i finally get to high school i get a trench coat uh, you know, in a Cooperish vibe. You know, I'm trying to keep Cooper alive that way uh, with my own style choices. Uh, you know, it wasn't even X Files chic at the time because X Files was still like a year away from making the television uh, screens. And you know, again, I probably could have let go of Twin Peaks, but you know, then I find it on Bravo in 1995, and I become fascinated by Lodge lore, and I start to kind of let go of my fears and start to process it a little bit. And you know, I want to get my my hero out of there so that he could finally win you know became more of an active participant in the in the process of understanding this stuff rather than just you know reacting to it and you know most of the time from between then and now i've been working on things like you know fan fiction adjacent kind of material that you know, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I can figure out how to get Cooper out of there, you know, and I'm thinking this whole time that I was one of the only heavy-duty uh, Twin Peaks fans left because, you know, I didn't know about Usenet at the time. And when I did join the Internet, X-Files was the only thing really being talked about because it was in Season 2, and, um, you know, that was the the, the cult status uh, choice for fandom at the time. And, um, you know, Twin Peaks essentially seemed forgotten by then. But, you know, even over more time, you know, we get, you know, uh, 2014, we get uh, Brad Dukes putting out Reflections. That's when we get the complete uh, series with the missing pieces even coming out. And, you know, of course, you know, then the announcement that there is going to be more Twin Peaks because, you know, a lot of people like me, you know, bought all the DVD sets over time, you know, in multiple different ways. And uh, we kind of proved that there would be a little bit of cash value for a network to be making more. But, you know, it wasn't just me and it wasn't just other people kind of attached to this show. It wouldn't exist at all if, you know, Mark Frost hadn't remembered it and called up David Lynch. But David Lynch couldn't forget about this show either. I mean, the whole experience for him is a completely different animal. You know, just like how he couldn't forget about Laura Palmer and he wanted to see her in Firewalk with me, he couldn't let go of this show either. You know, no matter how much he tries to put a cap on it with things like the Log Lady intro that we're going to talk about next. And Margaret says, 
and now an ending. Where there was once one, there are now two. Or were there always two? What is a reflection? A chance to see two? When there are chances for reflections, there can always be two or more. Only when we are everywhere will there be just one. It has been a pleasure speaking to you. And then, unlike pretty much every other Log Lady intro, there's a camera movement where it zooms in more and more and more into Margaret's eye so that it's like focusing into the black part of her eye almost. And then there's a flash and darkness with a, with a, crazy crack of a electrical sound you know i don't know if it's a breaker turning off or whatever it is but you know the electricity stops the visuals stop and the flash begets darkness so yeah that that cut at the end reminds me of how the electricity is gone at the end of laura's scream at the end of uh, season three as well and you know and i i think it is a way of saying that the electricity is gone the story is over uh, the dream is over, and it can't broadcast anymore. So, I mean, you know, from a nuts and bolts point of view, I think that's how this literally ends. But then, you know, we hear, you know, where there was once, now there are two. And Lynch is the one who saw a good Dale and a bad Dale as a divided self, rather than, you know, a doppelganger just running loose. And, you know, I mean, the, the doppelganger is a shadow self, according to the Jungian side of the interpretation. But, yeah, rather than a possession or, yeah, like it's, it, it's definitely there's a good Dale and a bad Dale for sure. It's codified within Lynch. That's just how he sees it. And um, the, the mention of what is a reflection, I feel like that rhymes with... Um, a what is season three way that I explore what is to come where, you know, like if you're looking at something from a mirror and, you know, I mean, this is my, um, like navigating between worlds is the thing that I called it. But, you know, my, my understanding of season three is like, if you are looking from the mirror, you look one direction, you see the image and you look the other direction and you see the reflection, but they are both taking up equal weight. And, you know, I feel like the mirror is a way to see the internal world uh, made from dreams and lodge space. And, you know, that's why we get things like reversals. And hearing Margaret here saying something like, you know, are, there are chances for reflections. There can always be two or more. I kind of feel like this is the way that Lynch understands quantum mechanics. And the thought, only when we are everywhere will there be just one. Um I kind of feel like that's how um, how Lynch and Frost kind of fundamentally do agree um, is when you unify yourself, when you integrate yourself, um, call you know all all your pieces can be in balance and therefore recognized by all parts, and therefore you're recognized as one. And I know that goes more than, you know, like the, the unified field that Lynch talks about rather than the marketplace where we are here in the physical world. But, you know, it all kind of works together in every level. And it's, it's neat how Margaret just summarizes it here so simply. And then ending it, I mean, you know, obviously the electricity crack and everything, but um, 
it's also neat that Margaret ends with, it has been a pleasure speaking to you, which, um, to me, you know, I, that, that article I wrote, gratitude, respect, and compassion in Twin Peaks, um, also on 25YL, like the navigating between worlds, you know, the, the lesson that I get from season three is like, you know, like once you dig yourself out of your shit, you thank the people you journeyed with, you know, you express gratitude for them, you know, thanking the people who shaped you into who you are is one of the steps involved in, you know, shoveling yourself out of your shit and in general growing light. And Margaret is the light bearer in the lore for season three stuff. And it's neat that it's here too, because I mean, that's just how Lynch lives his life, you know, um, thank the people who helped bring you here, you know, and that's the viewers too, not just, uh, the people that he, you know, like actively works with making twin peaks. And with that, I kind of feel like we're ready to get into the next part of the episode, which is uh, looking at my big questions. But of course, before that, we're going to hear some words from our fellow podcasters at the ruminations radio network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, so welcome back. Uh, The first question that I'm going to look into is... How did Lynch's script changes affect the story? So, in some senses, Lynch has a disregard for continuity. And then, in some ways, he does have a regard for it. You know, like, he he thinks about, you know, the ending points needing to be regarded. But, you know, he wasn't paying too much attention to things like wardrobe from the episode before. Like, you know, the Donna scene, it was mentioned by, I believe it was Mary Jo Deschanel, that, you know, everybody would still be dressed from the Miss Twin Peaks competition. You know, Lynch basically stopped uh, production and everybody went into costuming to get dressed in those costumes. And it got changed that way, but it wasn't Lynch's instinct. And, you know, like we get Earl in his suit rather than being in the log lady costume. You know, when did he have time to change? You know, who cares? It's it's more about, you know, the feeling than it is about exact exactness sometimes. But, you know, then he'll line up his own internal continuity Uh, as well, you know, where, among other things, you know, Audrey mentions that, you know, she wants Agent Cooper uh, contacted about her uh, her protest, even though he would have absolutely no interest in doing that. And, you know, you know, she she's beyond her Cooper fangirling. And it's kind of like Lynch bringing things back to the pilot again. And uh, one of the ways that he restructures this this episode is that he kind of creates a space where everyone who created the pilot can uh, come back together and it almost feels like Lynch is trying to restart the show thematically and energy wise. And, you know, he wants to do it together, you know, thanking them in a way too. You know, it's like the Dicks and the Lanas were left behind last episode and only the core characters are left here. He even brings back the Palmers, you know, you know, Lynch always thanks his actors. I'm thinking about the, the, uh, the gather rounds that he says, you know, in season three, when someone finishes their contributions to the show, uh, you know, he thanked them then. And, uh, you know, here we have him bringing back people like, you know, Jan Darcy you know, playing Sylvia, you know, Charlotte Stewart playing Betty Briggs. He, he, he has this particular definition of what Twin Peaks is to him. And, uh, Working with those people is part of that definition. 
And again, even though there were rumblings of a movie being greenlit and whatnot before this episode aired, because, you know, there had been talks and about securing funding for a movie by now, that was not at all on Lynch's mind here back in March, um, April, May. That, that would have been about two months later when talk of a movie would happen. So, you know, I, I think at that point, Lynch was pretty concerned that I mean, you know, the the show was on hiatus uh, (laughs) at the time that this episode was being filmed, you know, possibly never even airing its later episodes. So, um, you know, this was a let's all let's let's do one more victory lap together and see what we can do together uh, while we have the time. And, you know, he couldn't get James Marshall, who was probably uh, filming Gladiator at the time. You know, not the Russell Crowe one. It was the one with Cuba Gooding Jr. And, you know, Piper Laurie may have been unavailable due to filming with Mark Frost on Storyville. Though I find that unconfirmed. Yeah, I mean, Catherine was in the script, but I really feel like there was an availability issue with Piper Laurie. And, you know, maybe Harriet Hayward didn't make sense to include into the story, or they couldn't find Jessica Wallenfels. Or, yeah, maybe she just wasn't available. And, you know, of course, Joan Chen was possibly going to be included through her body double. But I have a feeling that they didn't ask Joan Chen to come back because, you know, she asked to be written off the show and Lynch let her. So maybe that's a way that he was respecting her wishes. I don't know. But, you know, who is back? I already mentioned, you know, Jan Darcy as Sylvia, Charlotte Stewart as Betty Briggs. We've got Andrea Hayes being Heidi, um, you know, the entire Palmer family there. And, you know, it's so strange that Bob and Shelley were not going to be in the final episode you know not they they weren't included in any of the scenes and of course you know to Lynch that's just ludicrousness <laughs> and I guess he could say goodbye to the Roadhouse or the Great Northern which actually was going to be represented in the uh, Jungian dreamscape of the uh, the Scripps Black Lodge scenario but you can't say goodbye to Twin Peaks without the double R. <laughs> and with that double R scene and Heidi coming in and, you know, doing the laugh and the, the recycled dialogue from the pilot again, um, it essentially ended up helping create a circular story, too, that almost makes you feel like at the end of this episode, you got to loop right back around to the pilot. Yeah, it's it's interesting that it kind of went circular because that's a very Lynchian thing to do, too. And at this point, I kind of want to break down what are the changes to this story. And I'm going to break it down by act. So act one of the show has Lucy and Andy alone. Then it has the conference room scene with Cooper and Harry at the map and everything. Then we have Wyndham Earl taking Annie to and through the gateway. And then the scene where Nadine comes back to herself in the uh, Hurley house. And then we have the original act one of the script where it begins with a cleanup at the roadhouse after Earl's Havoc. Then Andy and Lucy basically doing the same scene, except it's busier with a whole bunch of characters behind them. You know, total chaos. Then we have the conference room scene where, you know, Cooper and Harry are near the map. Then we have the scene where Nadine comes back to herself. And then the act ends with a back and forth between Earl taking Annie to and through the gateway, as well as Cooper and Harry getting to the gateway and Cooper getting through the gateway on the heels of Wyndham Earl. 
So yeah, there's a slightly different order from the script to the screen. And, you know, the, the Cooper and Harry scenes in the woods are all excised for use later. And, you know, I will talk about all the Lodge-related stuff next episode. But as far as the other stuff, you know, there was no need to do an establishing aftermath scene at the Roadhouse. And, you know, the Andy and Lucy scene didn't need pageant girls in the scene. You know, it's, it's busy after the Roadhouse crisis. You know, there's also more explanation um, after Andy and Lucy's kiss where Andy tells her about the map and how he got his answers. But streamlining it the way Lynch does, you know, it keeps it more simple and to the heart of where Andy and Lucy would arrive at emotionally. It was smart and uncluttered. And then we have that conference room scene, which I'm going to talk about more next episode as well. But, you know, it was staged similarly, but it removed elements of the Briggs subplot that I will talk about later this episode. And, you know, it brings in people like Ronette and everything. You know, I'll, I'll talk about the changes there a, a lot more later. And in the Nadine is back scene, instead of being right before the Wyndham, Annie, and Cooper going into the lodge base scene, this takes place after Earl and Annie go in, which means that it could be affected after the fact by a certain amount of lodginess that's kind of seeping into the town. You know, fear has been used as a key to access a supernatural territory in the town and that kind of feels like it's affecting the scene there rather than the dialogue in the show where nadine was essentially kind of being used as comic relief this episode you know after um after mike's attempts to kiss her in the script she's you know verbose and she's confident and she's able to defend herself and she's played for comedy and in this show she's allowed to be meek and vulnerable and you know it breaks everyone's hearts this way and you know dignity is given to nadine this way and in the script nadine is 37 and in the show nadine says she's 35 so you know who knows maybe that's just um you know, Wendy Roby saying the wrong year in the uh, in the heat of the scene. And because it was so perfectly emotionally delivered, they just kept in the age change because, you know, who really cares about specifics like 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 numbers and dates? You know? <laughs> now, as far as act two goes, we've got um, in the show, it starts with Donna and Ben's fate in the uh, in the Hayward house. Then Andrew getting the key from the cake saver um then dale enters lodge space then we get immediately cooper's lodge song entrance with jimmy scott and then we find harry in the woods at the end or you know with, with andy and that's the end of that uh that act but in act two of the script it begins with rather than ends with andy finding harry in the woods and, you know, there's a there's also Andy finding a horse costume that acts kind of like a Wookiee trap gag where, um, you know, he gets like grabbed by the net into the air um, because he messes with it. But, you know, that that was jettisoned. Then we had Leo in Earl's cabin. Then we have Andrew getting the key. Then Donna and Ben's fate. And then we have Cooper's Jungian-style time in the lodge, ending the, the act. So yeah, in the show, we see all these B-plot characters getting their due in between when Earl and Annie enter the lodge space and when, when Cooper enters lodge space. 
But the script, you know, we have Cooper already having entered it at the end of Act One. So the script wanted to give us a break after Dale enters so that we're kind of left wondering what happened to Dale before we get his opening lodge sequence in the Great Northern with his father. But, you know, in this act in the show, we get Cooper entering and then it's uninterrupted, like right into what he sees inside. So yeah, in um in the script the uh, the Earl's cabin plot is um excised and as far as the um the Andrew getting the key scene, Andrew gets the key from the cake saver, same as in the show though in the show it's nighttime and in the script it's the next day already. And in the script instead of being caught by Pete right there at the end, he sneaks off before getting caught by Catherine who does the exact same switcheroo move with the with the safety deposit key. So I do like Catherine making the same move as Andrew at a different point in time. And it is a shame that she's not here, but, you know, we work with what we got on that one. As far as how Donna and Ben's scene at the Hayward's house uh, works, you know, it was initially written to be in daytime rather than the show's nighttime. But, you know, the flow is otherwise basically the same. The, the struggle in the script, though, is where Donna calls for daddy and Ben reaches towards her like she thinks she means him. So Ben pretty much makes it all official there, though, you know, still no words are used. It, it kind of codifies that, you know, more than just Donna's thinking that Ben is the father. And, you know, after after Ben gets uh, tossed at the fireplace mantle, we see Will recomposing at the end. You know, he apologizes and, you know, he's, he's like, oh, God, what have I done? And, you know, get my bag. So he, like, goes to work to try to help things rather than it being ambiguous. You know, it's like, what is going to happen with Ben? And, um, you know, how is everyone going to react? Yeah, it's it's pretty much, you know, we get the reaction in the script. And, you know, of course, I'll talk about Cooper's Lodge spaciness next time. Looking on to some changes in Act 3, in the show we get Andy getting Harry's breakfast order, Audrey, Andrew, and Pete at the Savings and Loan, Double R with Bobby and Shelley, and Heidi, Betty, and the Major, and Sarah and Jacoby. And then in Act 3 of the script, we've got Briggs and Hawk looking for Earl's cabin, Audrey, Andrew, and Catherine at the Savings and Loan, Harry in the woods with the sword and shield woman, Cooper seeing his double, Earl beckoning, and Annie in the lodge before a door slams shut. So, you know, again, I'm not going to talk about the lodgy stuff, but Act 3 of the show avoids directly going into the lodge space, and the script goes back to it for the final scene, just like in Act 2 and Act 1. You know, it's like the lodge stuff anchors every act. But yeah, this is the act where all the Briggs scenes that would have happened with, um, you know, Hawk and, and him finding Earl's cabin and everything... That all gets repurposed into the show's double R scene instead. You know, I'll, I'll be talking about that repurposing within my actual episode commentary. And, you know, I'll be talking about that Harry scene later as well. But as far as the bank scene goes, we've got Audrey, Andrew, and Catherine at the Savings and Loan, where Catherine actually follows Andrew into the vault area at the last second when Andrew triggers the bomb. So she, her life is in jeopardy at this point, too. 
Now, one other reason why not to include Catherine here is because this is a way to include Jack Nance as Pete Martell. But yeah, I mean, the most important stuff here is the double R scene and the the lodginess. But yeah, I'll be talking about that later. And then in Act 4, I'm not even going to break down the differences because that's entirely lodge-related, just like it is in the show. You know, except for the Cooper and Bob brushing their teeth together thing in the final moments, which actually is in the script. Yeah, there, there's um, <laughs> less changes there in a structural kind of way, per se, than in all the other acts. But yeah, so that's that's it from a nuts and bolts point of view. And I'm going to move on to the next question that I'm going to look at here, which is, does love heal all wounds? And episode 29 actually starts with one of the best expressions of love in the whole series. You know, we've got Lucy and Andy starting the episode heads together. They're looking in the same direction without making eye contact. And they establish the theme of the tone right away. You know, Andy asks, were you afraid, Punky? And, you know, Lucy describes her fear when the lights went out. So, you know, the, the lights go out, you're in darkness. There's fear there, and it basically leads her into worry about, you know, what if the same something, you know, a power outage happens at the hospital when she goes into labor? You know, she's thinking about the lights going out there, too. You know, to Lucy, the trauma is or can be repeating and continuing. You know, the cycles repeat into the future through worrying in the present. But, you know, Andy in response, says that he'll be there, you know, she won't be alone in the darkness, and he'll help her deliver that baby right there in front of the, right there in the elevator, in the darkness, in front of God and everybody. That means that, you know, a a healing presence, or, you know, like the, the divine presence will be there, and, you know, others will, you know, help will be there. And help overcomes Lucy's fear and their love kind of grows a light right there. You know, just like it it would in this hypothetical future that they're talking about and right here where they actually turn simultaneously to each other. They kiss and at the same exact second, they both say, I love you. And, um, you know, love has grown here and you know, light has grown here. And they seem to surprise themselves with this expression of their love, especially when it's in sync with their person's own admission. So, yeah, the theme of the episode, love can grow light through darkness. But genuine love has to be created by a connection between people, even, you know, if it's blatantly, you know, two heads together in a David Lynch shot. But why it works especially well with Lucy and Andy is because it's balanced. You know, they're able to acknowledge that there is darkness and be comfortable with the fact that their love will be enough and it just especially in the hands of david lynch you know the the comedy characters always show the path that the plot characters really need to be taking in order to be victorious and you know this first scene of the episode is right there in line with that kind of logic you know we'll we'll see it a lot more in season three of course but you know lynch always kind of does that with the comedy characters but yeah i note that you know andy and lucy both seem kind of surprised by 
their ability to say "I love you" and to recognize it in their person, and that reminds me of Shelley and Bobby. You know, in the in the hospital in episode eight, when Shelley's in there from smoke inhalation, you know, she says "I love you" to Bobby, and Bobby says, "You know, I guess I love you too," and you know, he's surprised that he's actually feeling this. You know, it's it's very similar to to how Andy and Lucy are here, and you know, there, there's a there's a real subtle nod to that hospital scene from episode eight because you know before their expression of love, you know, they they do that thing where they grab each other by the hair and do their cute little you know they're they're barking, and you know they do that right here too in their double R scene. And, you know, that scene has a strange vibe because it's got Dark Mood Woods playing in the background. So, you know, there's something not quite balanced in it. But it also has the Major and Betty canoodling and, like, feeding each other and, you know, getting close that way um, on the same side of a booth nearby. And, I mean, you know, just, just looking at it from, like, a you know, hair and makeup kind of standpoint, you know, the major is not shaking uh, like he was last episode, you know, possibly thanks to his love with Betty. And, you know, similarly, Bobby isn't showing any signs of injury from being hit in the head by a log by Earl. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we've got... Um, yeah, we've got Bobby and Shelly. They've got their heads close together. And, you know, with an expression of love soon to be said aloud now, Dark Mood Woods actually drops out of the score. And Bobby says, Shelly, I think we should get married. And Shelly, uh, uh, being a little bit more of a realist, she's like, Bobby, Leo, I'm still wearing his ring. And, you know, that's when they grab each other and do the cute little barking thing. And, yeah, so, I mean, that's that's another sign that, you know, like heads close by each other is kind of like part of the formula for, like, the real kind of love. And, you know, that makes me think about later on in the Red Room scenes how Bob has similar connections, like physical head connections with Earl and Doppelcooper. So, you know, maybe heads together just amplify either fear or, I mean, love or fear. You know, there, there's a similarity with both those. But, you know, anyway, we get we get the callback to Leo. You know, it's like, oh, I bet he's having the time of his life. Um, and, you know, we see the... Um, the, the Tim Hunter directed Leo holding the uh, spider cage with, with his teeth, you know, the string. And, you know, from that point, we get more Dark Mood Woods through the rest of the scene. And this is when Heidi arrives. And, you know, we get the mostly repeated dialogue from the pilot about, you know, jumpstarting the old man again. So, you know, blatantly shining a light on the callback and the repetition. And this is when we get Jacoby and Sarah showing up. But, you know, that, that part's for later. But, yeah. I mean, love feelings tend to overshadow things or like make, you know, make the darkness kind of less visible, you know, in, in addition to possibly healing and or covering over wounds like possibly Bobby's uh, injury and then uh, Briggs's shakes. You know, does love allow people to empathetically take on other people's wounds? Mike's head wound um, being treated by Doc Hayward, it looks like what Bobby should have, you know, after being clobbered by Earl. And, you know, sure, Mike could have also been hit off camera by Earl during all the chaos. But, you know, the delusion-fueled reality warping that, you know, we sometimes see can have a certain amount of plausibility of Mike taking on uh, Bobby's hit by a tree and or also uh, Nadine's sandbag injury, 
which, you know, she barely seems to be touched by here. And, you know, sure, super strength. Um, you know, there's plenty of plausibility that Mike's new injury isn't Lodgy, but, you know, from a thematic standpoint, it kind of works anyway. Regardless of Mike being able to take on others' pains to his own body, Mike is, from his head wound, able to express love for Nadine. And, you know, Mike's actually seeming kind of balanced here uh it seems you know you know even his doctor's orders from doc hayward is balanced you know remember 20 minutes on and 20 minutes off the ice bag it'll help with the swelling so yeah balance helps you know the the balance it helps heal the wounds and kind of allows love to be expressed as well uh you know mike starts talking and he says he was so worried about nadine he doubted where they stood but seeing that sandbag hit her well he'd do just about anything for her and then the tree hit me he says (laughs) so uh you know while nadine is trying to say something here mike continues and he says i love you and now nadine slowly turns to face mike and he says you know there i've said it and i'm glad And he goes in for a kiss to connect with her, but she pushes him away twice. And, you know, this is when Nadine reveals that she's back to her old self. As a reaction, it's Mike um, out of out of uh, Norma and Ed and Doc Hayward and Nadine being there in the room. It's Mike who's in an honest love adjacent kind of frequency who can admit that his part of the uh, delusion keeping out loud he says i'm sorry ed i think i let things get a little bit out of hand and it's funny that it's from the high schooler where all the grown-ups you know the the grown-ups were the ones mostly feeding the delusion and he's able to kind of be honest about it and like admit to his part of it so yeah he's the least responsible for nadine's state in this scenario but he's still owning his piece most Now, we see other things that love can do in this episode, but, you know, while it gives room to heal, it also hides the darker themes while you're basking in that kind of a healing situation. You know, essentially, does love frequency on its own mask over other frequencies in its light if if it's out of balance and too strong? You know, maybe Bobby uh, actually does have, uh, you know, the the log injury on his forehead. And, you know, they just can't acknowledge all the bad stuff now that people have, you know, physically entered Lodge Space before then. It's now, you know, like the, the Lodge Space energy is now physically influencing the perception of reality, like my theory on season three. You know, who knows? There's a certain plausibility for it, but, you know, it, it's conjecture. But, you know, since... Since while you're dreaming and healing, it's it's a thing that happens uh, in earlier episodes, too. You know, like how, you know, delusionally, Nadine was a high schooler and Ben Horn was a, a Civil War general. You know, it's like you don't see the energies anymore if you're too far in that love adjacency field. Or, you know, the healing field of it. And it could be similar to how Cooper can't see the Giants Roadhouse warning under the love-adjacent feelings Cooper has for Annie. You know, even in this episode where Ed and Norma are dancing to the music nearby uh, Mike and Nadine. You know, it's like we're not allowed to hear the music that Ed and Norma are snapping and dancing to. Uh, You know, they're enjoying each other's companies regardless of Mike and Nadine's injuries or even the missing status of Norma's sister. After the scene where Earl and Annie enter the curtains in the dark, Ed's coat 
literally becomes the darkness. He he walks away from the camera enough to reveal the frame. Yeah, that that's where Ed can't stop snapping. You know, he's feeling the music that we're not quite hearing as viewers even. They're completely unconcerned with Annie missing. And it makes me think again of Lynch having a particular take on Twin Peaks. You know, with his... It, it's not necessarily that they're being clouded over that Annie might be Norma's sister. It's it's possible that, you know, Lynch possibly forgot that Annie is supposed to be Norma's sister. Or, you know, it could be saying something about the way reality works, like I was just hypothesizing. You know, the the way that Annie and Caroline blur together inside the Red Room, you know, is this another way of showing that Annie could possibly be more of a Tulpa kind of creation than a genuine sister for Norma. I don't know. Or is it just another way to show how Lodge Space can ripple through reality and, you know, what we're able to observe and remember at any given point in time? And, you know, honestly, Ed and Norma here are only able to snap out of whatever music they're hearing when Nadine comes back to herself. And it's just like how the diner scene is only able to acknowledge the supernatural undertones when Jacoby and Sarah disrupt the scene. And that pretty much gets me to the point where we're going to go into our next question, which is, how does darkness reveal itself? Now, I said I would talk about the removed Briggs subplot at this point because it's essentially what's replaced for the double R scene with with Briggs in it. So in the conference room scene in Act 1, Cooper basically says, Hawk, get Major Briggs from infirmary to find Earl's cabin. So that would have been like a real-world analog to Cooper's find Earl plotline in the Red Room zone. But, you know, as Lynch changed that plot anyway, it made sense to call for Briggs's help on the main plot line later in a more supernatural capacity. So Briggs in in um, in the script is still a major help getting Cooper from the Lodge, but he's essentially has already seen the White Lodge earlier in the series, and he would be the one to go in and rescue Cooper. So it makes sense that they would set him up in that kind of capacity. In Act 2, we see Leo and Earl's cabin trying to escape his spider trap, and I like that this Act 2 little snippet got removed as well, even though it's Leo. You know, it's repurposed into the, you know, it's, you know, having the time of his life joke. In Act 3, where the diner scene is located, we've got Briggs and Hawk looking for Earl's cabin, and they talk about things while searching in the woods. The drug that Earl gave Briggs has heightened his senses. His brain now perhaps is better able to interpret and define reality, possibly. Like, he can hear flowers. You know, hearing flowers makes me think about that thing in the Laura diary where, um, you know, what would have happened had someone been able to understand the trees where Bob assaulted her? You know, there's a diary entry about, you know, like, what if people could actually understand the trees? So um, if Briggs can hear flowers here, it's thematically on point. And I like how Lynch has repurposed this whole thing about, like, the effect of 
Briggs's understanding from the Haloperidol overdose, you know, overdose, um, it would put him in a mindset to be similarly receptive to Sarah Palmer entering with Jacoby, which is the part that Lynch kind of repurposed from that conversation between him and Hawk. But yeah, in the script, he and Hawk find the cabin, and uh, Leo's thrilled, and he opens his mouth and says, hi, and let's go with a spider trap. And then we get the establishing shot of the cabin outside while we hear sounds of screaming and gunshots. It seems like the intent is actually comedy and chaos for that plot line, uh, where where that cliffhanger was going to end. You know, overall, I'm glad it was removed and replaced by the double R scene. The change includes left out Bobby and Shelly, it allows for another level of repeating cycles with Heidi and brings in Betty and Jacoby and Sarah, not to mention the diner itself for one last time for Lynch to work with them. And I think it's smarter to include Briggs in the main plot of rescuing Cooper rather than inadvertently rescuing Leo. Uh, because, you know, as Bobby said, Leo's probably having the time of his life. And it's great that the major was introduced into this plot also from a love-based point of view rather than a fear-based one where they're trying to you know all intercept earl coming at this plot line from a love-based frequency he has the correct key to navigate the waiting room more safely now as far as the double r scene that involves jacoby and sarah they enter in in these extremely wild colors and style, you know, uh, uh, Jacoby's cloak. Oh my goodness! Um, you know, they announce themselves as loudly as possible without the need to shout with words. They um, they disrupt with visuals. And you know, Sarah was looking for the major because Jacoby says, "Well, you were right. There's the major." And she sits across the booth and breathes raggedly. And you know, she says in this low pitch. I'm in the Black Lodge with Dale Cooper. And the Major nods uncomfortably as if he understands this is bad news for sure. And then the um, the empty Red Room hallway is shown visually and the camera moves slowly forward. And the, the voice gets higher pitched, but it's got that backwards word vibe. And it says, I'm waiting for you. And, you know, the, the debate has been on for years. Who is the voice? And honestly, it sounds like Earl to me. Wyndham Earl is what the subtitles say, but I mean, the subtitles have been all over the map. You know, sometimes, you know, like James singing Just You is usually credited as woman. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the subtitles are not the uh, the clue you want them to be. Though, you know, it still would stand a reason because, you know, Earl, I mean, first of all, the tone, the tone seems pretty close to me in the first place, you know, the inflection and everything. And he is the one talking about the Black Lodge all the time. And, you know, it could be where he actually thinks he is, even though uh, Lynch in like a Rolling Stone interview uh, around the time season three was beginning to air. He said that he's never shown the Black Lodge on film. If it's Earl doing the voice, it could be a talk. You know, to take all the pieces on the chessboard in one fell swoop in the lodge where he has all this new power. You know, hubris would make this feel like a great idea to Earl. But in another sense, it could be someone calling for help. You know, like how Cooper and Tulpa Diane seem to have some kind of plan against Apple Cooper in the 2017 Twin Peaks that, you know, wasn't discussed on camera but seems to have been happening behind the scenes. And it could be Annie 
calling for help, you know, using the name of, you know, the Black Lodge, the way she heard Earl call it, and what she called it in similar fashion as she did in in, uh, Fire Walk With Me in her scene in Laura's bed, uh, when Laura's kind of dreaming in that painting. You know, in in typical Lynch fashion, you can make plausible case that this came from a negative point of view, like taunting Briggs, or a plausible case that this came from a positive POV, where they actually are expressing a call for help from inside the lodge, you know, for some kind of jailbreak, probably. But, you know, I mean, it's all conjecture, and I'm going to stick with the Lodge stuff most from now in the next episode. But, you know, similar to Earl's hubris, getting him into trouble later, he's not going to walk away from the Red Room. We have a real-world kind of example of that happening with Andrew Packard and, you know, everybody else in the savings and loan. But, you know, first we have Audrey pretty much realizing herself. You know, she sets up a protest at the vault door, uh, you know, tells Dill Nibbler to get a message to Dwayne Milford, uh, you know, protesting the financial ties to Ghostwood Projects, etc. The editor then asks for a water. And in similar, almost uh, mirroring, it's definitely rhyming with the way that Cooper's room service waiter situation in episode eight was all concerned about the beverage, you know, which she does get. But absolutely no call is made over the phone, which, you know, adds to the cyclical vibes in general of this episode, back to the pilot and the season two premiere. And, you know, honestly, if Audrey's echoing Dale Cooper moments from earlier in the series, I mean, that's um, that's kind of similar to how everybody's seen in uh, season three. You know, it's like these could all be possible aspects of Dale Cooper because he's stuck in the lodge, you know, being that ghost that that ghost ghostly uh, superimposed face image over the top of everything if he wants to see it that way so like everybody could technically be an aspect of dale cooper in season three well he already entered the lodge at this point and this this savings and loan scene is the only scene that happens in the real world at that point since dale goes into the red room so i mean technically it fits uh too where like you know she could be an aspect of dale if you want to go that way uh, <laughs> i don't but uh uh it's um it's interesting that it still works out that way even though i don't like that answer myself personally but you know audrey's also kind of cycling through her old behaviors as well you know she uh she wanted Dale Cooper to know, you know, that that she was uh, part of this uh, protest, just like she left Cooper a note in season one about her unsanctioned One-Eyed Jacks investigation. You know, she's making sure Agent Cooper is contacted with this information as well to presumably swoop in and save the day, even though she's been beyond his, uh, you know, worshiping him like a hero since around uh, episode 18. But, you know, just like she jumped into One-Eyed Jacks on her own, she's left at the end of the season in a state of peril, unable to be rescued by Dale. Yeah, like I said, how this could be technically a liminal state since Dale has physically entered the lodge. You know, there's a way where, like, a certain dreaminess is possibly over the town now. And before she goes into her coma from getting the... uh, the explosion in her general vicinity. The last thing Audrey hears before the explosion is a, the policeman uh, on duty who answered the desk phone saying three times, it's a boy. And, you know, during her coma, 
a thing said three times possibly has enough power to manifest? You know, I mean, you, there's there's a whole Richard Horn angle to it if you want it. But the explosion had nothing to do with Audrey. You know, it's not her hubris that starts that explosion this time, unlike jumping into one-eyed jacks like that. You know, she, she didn't think this was going to be an unsafe situation. It was just supposed to be shining light on untruth or, you know, on, on hidden secrets. You know, the, the hubris that makes this explosion comes from Andrew and Pete's overwhelming appetite that turns into destruction. Because, I mean, come on, if you got a key from your primary rival, wouldn't you question this deathbed key? You know, a rival isn't going to just say, congratulations, you've bested me, no matter how much you'd want to hear that. They're going to try to take you down. And Andrew especially should know that because that's what he would do. He would enact some kind of plan that would, you know, spring on his rival. And, you know, he'd laugh at it just like he... He laughs at, you know, a pancake art project from Pete. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, this this plot of his all starts with his appetite for answers. And, you know, the, the power that he thinks that answer will give him. You know, in the first scene here in Blue Pine Lodge, Andrew lifts the cake saver, knows it's a safety deposit box key, switches it for one of his own, and says out loud, they'll never know the difference. And that's when Pete enters, um knows this was underhanded, you know, something or other was happening. He just says, oh, Andrew. And Andrew says, good night, Pete, and walks away. But apparently, Pete's judgment doesn't go very far because he's practically attached to Andrew as they walk deliberately through the savings and loan scene. You know, Andrew, when they finally put the the key in the lock, you know, Andrew just says, we've come to the end of the road, Pete. And, you know, they know they're getting their answer right here. Yet still, he's completely surprised by the fact that it's a bomb. You know, it's like the, the oh, shit, is clear. Um, you know, it's clearly being mouthed. You know, like it just never occurred to him. The common sense, like he was so out of balance with appetite that the common sense just wasn't able to enter. And then, you know, we get the front of the building, you know, lots of sand explosions, etc. You know, car, car squeals. And then we see Dell's glasses flying through the air. You know, landing on a tree and, you know, a little bit of money falling, too. And, you know, essentially, Andrew, for sure, is consumed by fire, just like Earl when uh, he jumped in too deep without thinking about what he was getting with all of his, quote unquote, power and answers. And, you know, I mean, one of the themes of the show, you know, hubris is responded to. It's not rewarded, but it's responded to and possibly always by fire in this case. But, you know, there, there's, you know, sometimes it's responded to with a fireplace, like with Ben Horn. You know, okay, we, we got Andrew Packard giving no forethought to what Thomas Eckert was thinking, you know, might do in response to opening the safety deposit box. And we got Ben, uh, Ben Horn, giving no forethought to how any of the Haywards would respond to his appetite to being good. You know, he can't see outside of his own internal light field. And, um, 
you know, he's not thinking about what will happen with, you know, Will and Eileen's longstanding interest in lying to cover over what marital, uh, marital instability or whatever, uh, whatever it is that comes crashing down all the lies. And, you know, it's it's basically a secret getting revealed. You know, honestly, this whole scene and the whole episode is really a springboard for everything that we end up reading in Final Dossier. But, you know, before Donna's entire world falls apart uh, with all the confirmations that she gets in this part of the scene, you know, we have Eileen and Ben standing nearby each other uh, by the door. And Eileen asks to have a chance to explain to Donna, and Ben just says, Donna. And Donna just wants to be left alone. You know, and, and she says, leave me alone. That's her only wish at this point. You know, sometimes you just need to look away and show the white of your eyes to things if they're too much to confront right then. You know, just ask Nadine. And, um, you know, Ben tries to take the blame, which is actually a responsible thing for him. But, you know, of course, it's a bit too late. You know, too little too late. You know, he says he only wanted to do good, only wanted to be good. And it felt so good to tell the truth after all these years. And, you know, this is when Doc walks in seeing seeing Donna crying. And then he sees Ben and he just says, Ben, I warned you, get out of my house. And, um... You know, Ben actually just asks for forgiveness. He says, can you forgive me for what I've done to you? So, like, he's actually taking just as much responsibility as Mike does, you know, now. <laughs> he didn't, uh, when he got into this mess in the first place, making it a little bit too loud so that Donna heard it without learning any nuance. But, you know, then Sylvia comes in and uh you know, he, he changes his tone to kind of frustration with her. And he says, Sylvia, I told you to stay home. So, um, you know, things are just amping up everything. And, uh, you know, we got Sylvia saying, you know, what are you trying to do to this family? So she's kind of a voice of reason for this. And, uh, you know, at this point, Donna's on repeat saying, you're my daddy, you're my daddy to, to Will. And Donna sees what she wasn't allowed to see. That, you know, Ben might actually be her dad, but she wants to go back to that lie and, you know, nature versus nurture. I mean, Will is essentially her dad at this point, even if it's not biological. And it, it's kind of a way to talk about Wally Brando later on, I, I imagine. And what what Donna does here is she chooses to look inward to the lie that gave her comfort and safety. But, you know, she still wants that to be her truth, but now she knows that it just isn't. And Doc's response to Ben is, leave my family alone. And this is when he runs at Ben and punches him and lands Ben's forehead on the on the fireplace mantle. And Will is essentially like, you know, when burying the truth won't do anymore, anger, I guess, is the only response. And we see Donna absorbing the fact that her safe paternalistic dad just decked her biological dad and yeah and you know then doc covers his face and does a huge roar and you know then we see ben 
uh, with blood on his forehead, and then he twitches once. So, um, yeah, a note about that kind of a head wound. I mean, you know, we've got, okay, Mike Nelson's is on the side of his head. That's a little bit different, and it's wrapped up. You know, Ben's a square on the forehead and bleeding, like Leland when Bob needed out um, in the uh, in the jail cell. That's where... Um, Leland was hitting himself and like Doppel Cooper at the end of this episode as Bob comes in in the bathroom mirror. And, you know, I'm not going to speculate on about the blood on Annie's face right here, but, you know, I can I can pretty much guarantee that based on Leland and Cooper, uh, we are going to get a completely different kind of Ben Horn in the original uh, season three that could have been intended. You know, possibly one who's possessed with a decidedly different kind of trajectory. And, you know, the, the, the direction of that trajectory, I would say that, you know, that's something that the writers probably hadn't even decided on, but they gave a lot of clues that, you know, we're going to get a Ben, what, 4.0 at this point? But, yeah, I mean, we've got all the kinds of head trauma here, you know, and, and uh, I, I'm uh, thinking about another way that truth is kind of coming to the surface is from Nadine's uh, sandbag hit, where she's kind of returning to herself. And, yeah, I'm remembering what the script had her be. You know, she was supposed to be the episode's comic relief at one point. But, you know, here we see all the ramifications of her living, you know, I mean, at least since episode nine, um, living under a similar lie as Donna, uh, you know, completely unawares of what she's keeping from herself. You know, she's living in a reality that she absolutely believed in, even though it was patently false. Though, you know, of course, hers was traumatically self-inflicted with a suicide attempt. And um, it seems like this trauma to the head, you know, put herself back where she was before her mental break. But, you know, as a result, she's just as disoriented as Donna is when Nadine comes back to herself. You know, she's she's got a hard reset and she can't remember her time healing and delusion. You know, she doesn't even recognize Mike here. You know, she asks, who are you? And he says, Mike. And, you know, she can't even say that he just tried to kiss her. But, you know, she's like, she, she's making these gestures like, oh, my God, he, he, what you were trying to kiss me. You know, like she can't even comprehend why or how that could happen. And, you know, she says, you know, you, you say your name is Mike. You know, what are you doing in my house? And, um, you know, this is what finally snaps Norma and Ed to attention. You know, and, and Doc Hayward's noticing this, too, and he looks at Ed. And we see Nadine pulling away with a no when Mike says, you brought me here, Nadine. And, you know, the familiarity that he has with her is killing her. And she tells she tells Mike to go and then says, Ed, make him go away. Then she sees Norma, and she's like, you know, what is she doing here? And then she starts whimpering, and like, almost like she's starting to realize what, you know, what kind of life she had, you know, leading into Twin Miss Twin Peaks. And, uh, you know, she just whimpers and says, it's not fair. And then she, um, she twice shouts out, where are my drape runners? So, um, you know, this is when Ed grabs her in that tight embrace and, you know, kind of shakes her almost and, you know, asks her twice how old she is. And she's she finally says, 35, you moron. And, um, you know, Nadine just cries at this point and the camera focuses on Norma and then Mike, you know, the, the, the people most affected by Nadine and Ed not confronting each other all this time. And, you know, the hit on Nadine's head opened her up to the truth again. But 
it was um it was to the lie that she was living which according to her awareness probably existed just about as much as a dream and it feels to me kind of like this dream that Bill Hastings thought he had that he's being asked about by uh, Tammy Preston, you know, and like, you know, he, he watched Ruth Davenport die there, but, you know, it wasn't real to him because it was just a dream, right? Except, you know, he's starting to wake up to the whole thing. Like, maybe it's a little bit more than that. And during the scene, I do find it kind of interesting that, yet again, we have Doc Hayward being present here in a in a scene where truth is like bubbling to the surface really uncomfortably and you know let, let's just let's just break down doc hayward's moments in the last couple episodes he couldn't protect annie from abduction last episode and he seems to kind of forget that all this episode he didn't offer any anyone help when nadine came to herself you know he just treated the wounds and then was ready to go away like you know the perfect you know you know triage doctor rather than you know looking for full healing it's it's an interesting choice to have doc there in the first place because you know rather than jacoby who's been handling nadine's medical journey you know <laughs> for for a number of episodes now so um and and you know jacoby was in this episode too it's not like russ tamblin was just not on set that day you know they they were all there so yeah i mean he uh he kind of drops the ball on that one. And then he couldn't help Donna after she came into the truth about her parentage. You know, Doc did the exact opposite of helping Ben immediately after. And, you know, then he stopped short of helping Ben, unlike in the script where he actually did start uh, helping. So, like, that was a choice by Lynch to leave him not helping. And, you know, it's this guy who's there at the end with Harry when Doppelcooper wakes up. And, you know, Doc Hayward, you know, when, when Cooper opens his eyes and you know, starts, uh, starts moving around, it's Doc Hayward who declares there he is, you know, which exa- it, it kind of echoes to me the are you really you that um, Diane and Dale slash Richard possible uh, Cooper share from part 18 as Dale walks out of the, um, the sycamore trees. And, you know, Doc, he's been on both extremes. He's um, there with Nadine and then, you know, they're, uh, you know, breaking it. <laughs> I'm breaking, uh, breaking Ben into the fireplace. You know, it's like uh, you know, he, he's been to both extremes of, you know, love and fear in here, uh, you know, hearing uh, Mike Nelson's declaration. So, like, uh, it, it's interesting that, in a way, he's kind of balanced that way while still being kind of in between everything. And it's interesting that he's the one who declares that Doppelcooper is present in this world. And uh, that leads me to the other guy who's in that room, Harry Truman, who is essentially the one person outside of Earl, Annie, and Cooper to get the closest to the supernatural storyline of this episode. And in a lot of ways, he gets even closer than Briggs and Sarah because, you know, he actually is looking at the junction point where, um, you know, Cooper went into. Now, as far as his um, his original moments in the script for this, in the conference room scene, instead of Truman being the one to connect the 12 sycamores to Ghostwood National Park, Cooper does it actively there, and Truman only reinforces the intuition rather than exhibiting the intuition on his own. 
And while Harry waits for Cooper to leave the the lodge opening, you know, it's daylight and Harry gives his food order a little more actively to Andy and it's in a more coherent kind of way, you know, kind of like how Nadine was a little more present and active in her scene. And Andy, that that's when um, Andy leaves to place the order, you know, gets stuck in that trap with the horse costume and a gleaming white shield and hand with a silver sword appears and then the tall, dark woman in chainmail, uh, who's holding the sword and shield, appears. And she holds the sword out to Truman like he's supposed to take it. And I think essentially that's, that's where Truman's plot kind of ends. And in theosophy, a quest for the grail is a huge thing. This, I, I'm assuming this relates to that, you know, all the, all the Arthurian stuff. And, oh, and of course, you know, death and rebirth, you know, King Arthur will come again and all that. Just like, uh, you know, the passion play is supposed to, you know, push back the darkness in the wood. And the passion play is um, related to Jesus rising from the dead around Easter time. And, yeah, so, like, there's all this death, rebirth kind of stuff in the first place, but also the Arthurian stuff really does tie into theosophy, which is the main uh, scaffolding for all the lore in this. So it's interesting that, you know, while there's a dweller on the threshold and all that being a guardian, that Harry would be, like, kind of in a hero role in this, which would make him more active. But, you know, of course, Lynch... You know, the director, who's going to change a few things here and there, doesn't feel this whole theosophy bent. You know, I, he's he never really wanted the lodges to be a physical place you could actually go to. You know, he's got his own understanding of the supernatural, so this whole thing is nixed. And um, in the show, Harry's more of a passive character, and he's possibly just transfixed. When Harry and Cooper are first arriving that night, you know, following Pete's blue truck and, you know, Earl and Annie's trail in the woods, Cooper is is basically walking through the forest and, you know, Harry, it, it's Harry's light that they're using. You know, Harry is the source of the light. And um, Cooper basically stops in place at one point and says, Harry, I have to go alone. And Harry just asks why. And, you know, Cooper doesn't dignify him with a response at that point. And we see, you know, trees and light again, kind of like when Annie recites her prayer from Psalms. But, you know, this time the scene is silent and Harry is shown slowly starting to follow Cooper. And, you know, we get Cooper walking forward, holding, holding light at his side. So he does have a light now. And, you know, there, there's a sphere of light kind of around him. And, you know, there, there's owls hooting. He looks up. And Cooper does locate the grove of sycamores that Harry uh, spoke of in the conference room scene. And, you know, the light shines across it. And that's when the supernatural hum kicks in, that, that tone. And, you know, Cooper walks into it and, um, you know, sees the gateway, says things out loud like, you know, uh, an opening to a gateway, footprints. And, you know, then he starts doing the things like applying the contents of the jar, the curtains appear. And this is when Harry arrives to see him entering these curtains that came from nowhere. And, you know, Harry just says, my God. You know, the curtains disappear at that point, and there's almost a gold light just above the portal point that is the last thing to fade away, and uh, Harry just can't stop staring at that spot. 
And what I'm trying to think of is, you know, you know how um, the the lawmen all flickered in part 14 of season three when they were on their way to the White Lodge portal where um, Andy would eventually go in and end up recovering NATO. Remember how all the um, all the policemen kind of flickered almost like there were more of them at, at the same geographic point? I kind of wonder if junction points have always felt like that to Lynch and Harry got kind of caught in that because he was able to see the junction point open. And, you know, I mean, it makes, it makes me think of, you know, even, even Lana Milford, you know, it's like she, she has that whole power to attract, um, you know, men's attention. And, you know, is, is this kind of like that, that pheromone mojo, where, like, you know, now Harry feels the same sort of negative energy. You know, I'm, I'm calling her a ring bearer because she's associated with the uh, with the Jade Ring later on in uh, Frost's books. You know, is that same kind of energy coming out of the portal and Harry can't look away? He's like, I mean, not, not like physically attracted to it or anything like that, but, you know, just like too fascinated and attracted to it like more magnetically. You know, later on in the dark, we get Andy arriving with a flashlight and, you know, he whispers, you know, Sheriff Truman. And luckily, Harry actually calls out and says, Andy, and, you know, um, over here, you know, he calls him over. And, you know, that's when Dark Mood Woods kicks in again is when Andy approaches him. So, you know, the the weird off balanceness of that song is um, is present. And I mean, sure, it goes to commercial break at that point, but then it comes back to that same spot, you know, the the same Dark Mood Woods track. And, uh, you know, we get the transition shot of, you know, gray fog on trees and a mountainside. We get the shot of Ronette's bridge and, you know, then the Grove of Sycamores. But now it's in daylight and we still have Harry, eyes and body locked to his right toward those those trees. And, um, you know, Andy's next to him and, um, you know, Harry's just saying, you know, been about 10 hours since he went in there. So, yeah, Harry is hyper focused for Cooper. And, you know, he, he like absentmindedly answers Andy, you know, it's like, do you want a thermos of coffee? Yeah. Do you want a plate special? Yeah. Do you want dessert? Yeah. Do you want pie? And, you know, there's a close-up of Harry's face, and we hear Andy saying, Harry? So, um, he's just transfixed at this point. And, you know, according to the final dossier, Harry's just not right after this. You know, it, it, it's like he's opened himself up to a sickness and a depression. And, you know, just like Cooper, he has a case that got away, and he's ruminating over it rather than being active in it solving from from this point up through the next, you know, 25 years or whatever. But in the short term, I kind of wonder if Harry's serving another role that would become codified in the 2017 Twin Peaks. Is Harry essentially the soil in the pockets that brings Doppel Cooper back to this world? You know, the Major Briggs's little note from that from that crazy little pod that uh, Bobby throws at the ground to open it says, "Make sure to keep soil in your pockets." And I kind of feel like without that soil, Andy wouldn't have been able to return to that particular junction point or that particular point on the other side of the junction point. And, you know, the soil is important as an anchor. And, you know, Harry is the one who will not, 
you know, take his eyes off that junction point that Cooper entered. So, you know, he's focused on it and he's kind of the connecting string for Cooper to go back to in a way, even if Cooper might not even know it. It, it's kind of like, you know, if you look away from a fairy, they just disappear and they become a rock or whatever. You know, it's something kind of like that, I think. And, um, you know, Harry's connected to that point anyway, because he's the one who knew about the 12 sycamores. And, you know, Harry's light was the only thing lighting the area when uh, Cooper entered in the first place. And he took Harry's light with him, literally. So it makes sense that there's this connection. And yeah, then we get Harry staking out the spot all night, all the next day, and into the next night. And it reminds me of Sam on the couch in parts one and two of Twin Peaks 2017. Um, You know, he had the same job where he's just supposed to stare at a junction point. And, you know, maybe if Harry wasn't staring at it all the time, maybe if he did walk away, maybe Doppelcooper and Annie couldn't have landed there. Kind of like how Dale slipped through that glass box and then kept going into the non-existence. But yeah, after that absent-mindedness where Harry couldn't couldn't even connect with Andy enough to to agree to pie, you know, Harry's there and it's dark again and Doppel Cooper had just caught Cooper at the curtains and you know, Bob trolls the camera doing the laughing, you know, looking into the fish-eyed lens and then we just see that it's dark and we see the sycamore tree with a small spotlight circle on the red curtains. And the the white portal ring is barely visible below, but it's there. And, uh, you know, Harry looks up and, you know, stirring almost like he's been asleep. So, you know, in a way, maybe Harry's asleep at this point, kind of like how Laura was asleep when she was in the Tremont's painting in uh, Fire Walk With Me. You know, there's so many things rhyme. But Harry registers something here and he's like, Cooper? And, you know, he runs toward the... uh, toward the trees and the circle and uh you know dark mood woods begins yet again and you know he asks cooper and um you know we get a close-up near the portal where harry's arm rolls cooper over and cooper blinks and looks up so he says cooper twice and physically touches cooper to kind of anchor him to the reality and with harry's recognition then he notices Annie as well. And he says, Annie, you know, who we see uh, laying absolutely still with blood around her mouth and nose. And then he has a concerned voice, Annie. So he says her name twice and kind of anchors her to this place too. And then Harry moves and there's another shot of Annie with Harry's worried Annie. So like he actually says three, he says Annie three times. The first time it's kind of a surprise that she might be there, then acknowledging her state. And then, you know, in another way, trying to like shake her out of it. But, you know, there's a transition shot for about seven seconds from there where we get nothing but the water from the falls. And then it goes into Cooper's room where Harry and Doc Hayward are there with Cooper. And, you know, I'll be talking about that next time. But for now, you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, and we would love to connect with you on our various social media accounts. I'm barely on Facebook, Counter Social and Tribal. I'm slightly more active on Twitter, uh, (laughs) but less and less by the day, at uh, Blue Rose TF Pod. 
And um, if you actually want to get a hold of me, I'm really active on Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky at Blue Rose Task Force and Tumblr at Blue Rose Task Force Pod. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com or our YouTube channel for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fit and Retro Futurist Culture. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my entire Electricity Nexus column at 25YearsLaterSite.com or TVObsessive.com. And if you want me to make another mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com or catch me with it on any of the socials. We'll see you next time as we finish covering Twin Peaks Episode 29, the 30th overall episode of Twin Peaks and the finale of Season 2 and the original series of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.